which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting away or putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is to stand and proclaim it. And Father, I pray that we might be faithful in the truth of your word, and that all things you might be glorified, you might be honored, and Lord, that we would be submissive, most importantly, to that which you have provided for us in in your precious word. Lord, I pray that we might have hearts to follow after Christ as we have received Christ, as your word declares even in uh, the previous verses of this passage. May we also walk in that truth. May we walk according to your power that dwelleth in us, the Spirit, your very Spirit, as you would reside in our hearts and lives. And Lord, may it be that we submit ourselves then totally unto you, that you be glorified and honored in all things, that you receive all the glory. We thank you for the Word of God and for its exhortation. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for its instruction. And I pray, Father, that we would have hearts that desire the truth of your Word and lives that are lived accordingly. We ask all this according to your will and that your purpose might be fulfilled in and through us unto your glory, unto your honor. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Within, this, uh, within the overview of this epistle months ago now, some six months ago or so, I guess, I pointed out to you the theme of this epistle to the Colossians in which Paul emphasizes the preeminence of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, 17 and 18, you see this unfold. Paul writes, And he is before all things, speaking of Jesus, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, or that he might have the preeminence. And within this text, within these verses, uh, chapter 1, 17 and 18, uh, Paul is not saying that Jesus should have preeminence, nor is he saying that Jesus can have preeminence, but rather he is saying that God has exalted Jesus. Everything that statement is in relation to God's work so that this might be true, so that this is true, that Christ would then have the preeminence, that he would be before all, above all, as one who came and manifested himself in the flesh, of course, as the very Son of God. And over the past several weeks of our study through this epistle, We have spent our time in the study of this second chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Colossae. And within the first three verses of this chapter, we examine, that is chapter 2, we examine first the treasures of the mystery of the gospel. And all throughout chapter 1, if you recall with me, Paul had explained the details concerning this mystery. And again, the mystery, just to, to remind you, is not the mystery of salvation itself alone. It is the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles specifically. This is the mystery. That is what Paul is talking about. That's clear throughout Ephesians. It's clear in Colossians and, and other passages as well of Paul's epistle. And so as I shared with you before, that uh, this mystery was not something that was unknown or had been not manifest or not declared, but rather by definition of the word itself, and understanding throughout the Old Testament prophets as this mystery had been declared. And it was said, for instance, again, that God would make a people who were not a people his people. So throughout the Old Testament, we find the declaration. God is saying, I'm going to the Gentiles 
They will praise my name. They will, they will worship me. And he's saying, I'm going to redeem them. And he's speaking that to Israel, of course, the Old Testament uh, nation of Israel. And so in that proclamation of this mystery, it was not that, it, again, it had not been declared. But again, the definition of the word itself, mystery, is that it was something that, though it had been declared, it was still not understood. It was that which was hidden in the sense that they could not comprehend its truth. They could not understand the meaning of what has been declared. And again, I remind you uh, that happens throughout the New Testament through the Gospels as well. If you remember, as Jesus would make statements and, and they just would not understand what he was saying, even though he told them, I'm going to die, I'm going to leave you. And they're going, we don't, we don't understand this. They could not comprehend that. They could not wrap their heads around that. And even though Jesus clearly taught them and told his disciples, they still thought he was saying something different uh, because they could not understand these truths at that point in time. So it was in the Old Testament with this mystery. And so we've seen how that Paul deals much with this mystery in the first chapter, then the treasures of the mystery in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Now, for the past two weeks, we've examined verses 4 through 7, in which Paul uh, provided first a warning to the Colossian believers concerning deceivers in verse 4. Then he acknowledged the steadfast faith of the Colossian believers in verse 5, and then provided an exhortation to the Colossians to continue in the faith in verses 6 through 7. And so two weeks ago, we considered Paul's warning of the deceivers. Look at verse 4 with me of chapter 2 of Colossians. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. The verb beguile means to deceive or to delude. It's to con or to hoodwink. It is to dupe or to fool. And so Paul is saying, I'm telling you this so that you are not duped, that you are not hoodwinked, that you are not fooled. And then the adjective enticing he uses here, enticing words, means persuasive speech. So he's saying this persuasive speech and words of these who desire to fool you and to dupe you. Last week we spent our time examining verses 5 through 7, in which Paul first we saw acknowledge the steadfast faith of the Colossian believers. Verse 5, I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, Paul says, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So Paul's commitment and the steadfast faith of the Colossian believers, they both serve as a reminder that those who possess biblical faith will be known by their testimony of such faith. This is absolute. This is not... Now, granted, I concede this truth to this truth that... Make concession here, I should say, that the reality is that there are those who are more spiritually mature than others. Yes, that's true. There are some who've been saved for many years that aren't as spiritually mature as others who've been saved for much less a time, who've walked with Christ. Spiritual maturity is not coming at some regulated level or amount, if you will, in every believer's life at the same amount of years or same amount of time or certain age or, or what have you. But rather, the fact of the matter still stands regardless that those who possess such saving faith those who know Christ, those who've been redeemed, that there is a testimony of that faith that will be present all the same. The noun steadfast here means firm and solid. And the church was firm in their faith, Paul is declaring, which meant that they were not easily moved by the heretical teaching which seemed to be increasing around them by the day with the Gnosticism that was creeping into the church that we've seen uh, many times throughout the study. We concluded our study last week with Paul's exhortation to the church, verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, 
rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. These verses provide, as I mentioned last week to you, they provide the antidote to all the heresy, all the deception, all the persuasive speech that was being used by those who were Gnostics of the day, who were attempting to turn the attention of these Colossian believers away from the preeminent Christ, or away from the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Again, I shared with you many times, let me just remind you, I believe it's important to interject this at this point, that Gnosticism, one of the uh, teachings of Gnosticism, of, uh, Gnosticism, of course, was that, that, as I mentioned to you last week, I believe that all matter is inherently evil. And therefore, if all matter is inherently evil, then Jesus could not have been the Son of God in the flesh without himself being sinful. Therefore, they rejected that Jesus had, was the Son of God or that Jesus, as the Son of God, manifested himself in the flesh. Uh, and, and to accompany that, Gnosticism also taught that you could gain a knowledge of God. The Gnosis is the Greek from which that derived Gnosticism. And that you could, you could actually gain some mystical or some knowledge of God in some mystical means or way. Now, the, the tragedy of that statement is in the fact, and it, it, again, it, it coincides with what I previously stated concerning Gnosticism a moment ago, is that if that were true, then there's no need for Jesus to have been manifested in the flesh because you can know God in some mystical way rather than the physical manifestation of his Son in the flesh. And so again, Paul is emphasizing throughout this entire text the preeminence of Jesus Christ and of course his sufficiency as Lord and Savior as well in that preeminent standing which Christ holds. And so we, we saw this antidote to this heresy and deception in verse 6, when Paul says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So the question I asked last week to you was simply, how had these Colossian believers received Jesus? And the answer is in Paul's wording in the verse. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. So to receive Jesus as Savior is to also submit to him as Lord. Paul further exhorted the church, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, he is Lord, so walk accordingly. So live your lives according to the manner in which you received Christ when you received him as Messiah. Christ, remember, is not his last name. Christ is the title, Messiah, the anointed one. So as you receive Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, as you have received him as such, you also received him as Lord. And if that be true, then live your lives accordingly. And that is the charge and that is the exhortation that Paul provides in this verse. And so to continue to walk in him in that manner is that we are continually submitting ourselves to this truth. First, that we are dependent upon him for our salvation. And second that we must be submitted to him as Lord. Because he's not Lord or Savior, Savior or Lord. He is Lord and Savior. It is who he is. And God declared him to be preeminent again, not something man does. You don't make Jesus preeminent. You don't make him first. We simply acknowledge the truth of the Scriptures as to what God has declared, who God has declared Christ to be, which is Lord, which is Savior. 
So as I mentioned last week in verse 8 of this second chapter of Colossians, Paul continued his warning to the Colossians concerning the danger of deceivers who would attempt to distract these believers from acknowledging and continuing to live in submission to the lordship or the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So let's begin looking at verse 8, where Paul says first, Beware, lest you be distracted from Christ. Look at what he says, verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. This verse provides clarity to other verses in which Paul makes similar statements, which have often been misinterpreted or misunderstood. I want to point you back to a few of them this morning. Ephesians 5, 6, for instance, Paul wrote, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, while which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Study to show thyself approved unto God. The word study here is out of diligence. Be diligent as a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Verse 16, but shun, avoid, profane, worthless, and vain, empty babblings. That's chatter and talk. For they will increase unto more ungodliness. And so, as I previously have mentioned to you, the clarification of Paul's statement in our text and the verses I just referenced is that Believers are to not allow anything to distract from the preeminence of Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, I explained that Paul quoted philosophers in his epistles. However, he did so with the understanding of how all truth points us to the truth of God as manifested and personified in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, while Paul himself was educated in philosophy and quoted pagan philosophers in the scriptures. He gives us quotes. I'll show you some in a moment. He did so for the purpose of propagating the gospel and rooting others in the truth of scriptures, not solely or simply for the sake of gaining knowledge, nor solely or simply for the sake of argument. The following verses are passages in which Paul quoted philosophers in either his preaching or his epistles. In Acts 17, 28, Paul says, and this is, of course, the account of Mars Hill, as you recall, but Paul says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. This is a quote believed to be from Eridus, a Greek philosopher born in 315 B.C., or Cleanthes, a Greek philosopher born in 331 B.C. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. This is a quote from Menander, a Greek dramatist or a Greek comedian in reality, born in 342 B.C. Titus 1, 12 and 13. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. This is a quote believed to be from Epimenides, a Greek poet and philosopher of the 7th or 6th century B.C. And so here you see that there are these men which Paul quoted that were pagan philosophers, pagan poets, pagan comedians, uh, which preceded him his, uh, uh, or, or centuries prior. And yet he quotes them, but 
there, there's several things for us to consider concerning his quotes. First of all, for Paul to have quoted these Greek philosophers, he would have had to have been a student of their works to know such. However, again, Paul was not using their works to support in the sport of their teaching, but rather using truth that they might have spoken as a resource to further explain the truth of the gospel and propagate the gospel and to point men to Christ and his preeminence. So once again, we see the clarity to these verses I've referenced a moment ago, which are quotes from philosophers and such, as I just mentioned. We see Paul clarifies all of this and his stance concerning such in verse 8, which has often been misunderstood, not necessarily verse 8, but this, this truth. And that is, beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, empty deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and here's the clincher I told you last week as well, and not after Christ. That is the emphasis Paul is making. So Paul is saying, if you allow anyone, anything, knowledge, anything in this world to distract you and detract from the preeminence of Jesus Christ, then that itself is sin. Now, I want to make a, a statement here. We were talking yesterday morning in our prayer time, uh, the men, how that it, it's quite interesting. Uh, I, I don't want to belabor the point here, but I do want to mention this in relation to all that is taking place here. You know, today it seems as though among many within the church that intellectualism has been demonized, if you will. And intellectualism, by definition, actually is the exercise of the intellect at the expense of the emotions. And that's literally a definition for it. So the point is, it's, it's that we are exercising the intellect at the expense of emotion. In other words, not allowing emotions to control and rule and reign, but rather our minds. I told you many times that God did not make us emotional beings with intelligence. He made us intellectual beings with emotion. We have emotion and emotions exude and, and times we act out of emotion. There's no doubt about all of that. But that never in the scriptures do you find that to be condoned or, 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 or propagated. But rather you find that we are to be so minded. We are to be of a sound mind. We are to be rooted. We are to be grounded. We are to be, uh, be clear thinking. And so all of that being stated... In the, in the church today, it seems there's been much of a demonization of intellectualism in that respect, and, and people, therefore, are left much to subjective feelings and, and their own opinions and subjective thoughts. Now, the danger in that, it was brought up just yesterday. I want to mention this as an example. I did not originally intend to even uh, touch on this, but I think it's kind of necessary in, in light of what we're dealing with, with what Paul is saying here, that there is something that took place that takes place within today and within America specifically, and we find that there are many young people, for instance, that have been raised, brought up in churches, taught, if you will, to some degree at least, and then one or two years into a university, secular college, whatever else, they are completely flipped, and they totally reject everything that they've ever been influenced by as far as church or even home, and only then embrace what this person is telling them who they don't even know in all probability, never knew him prior or her prior to this point in time. And one of the reasons I believe that that takes place is that when you think about the college setting and, and university setting, what the, the professors and such, they are intentionally, purposefully attempting to engage the mind of those students. They want to indoctrinate. They want to, they want to impose upon them these these errors or these lies or their indoctrination that 
draws away from the preeminence of Jesus Christ. They surely want to do that. And yet the church, notice what the church has done by large. The church has done exactly the opposite. The church, rather than engaging in the truth of the scriptures and rooting and grounding, and rather than using philosophy and all that has come before to help propagate the truth of the gospel and explanation, rather they ignore it and dismiss it. And most cases, men today, by large, not all, but by large, stand before congregations and this is their intentional purpose. Not to engage the mind or the intellect or the intelligence which is God-given, but rather to engage the emotions of all those who sit and hear. And when that happens, notice, this is the problem. Years of emotional manipulation cannot begin to stand in defense to intellectual stimulation. And so while people are teaching and engaging the mind in secular realms, the church has been busy engaging the emotions of people, which is not rooting and grounding them in truth whatsoever. So Paul is not saying, forsake all philosophy or forsake all truth that is not coming directly out of the Scriptures. Paul used these truths within the Scriptures as he wrote them, or as he proclaimed them. What he is saying is the moment that that distracts us from the preeminence of Jesus Christ, here is where the warning must be heeded that we not allow that to be, for that it's sin. And then we begin to idolize other things. And even as Paul stated, as you're aware, the Scriptures teach us, knowledge puffeth up. That doesn't mean that we aren't to increase in our understanding, our learning, and being rooted and grounded, but it should all be in relation to the preeminence of Christ and our submission to His Lordship, not gaining knowledge for the sake of gaining knowledge, but gaining knowledge that we might engage a world which the church, by large, has neglected to engage in an intellectual, rational level and manner. It's a mess. That's the bottom line. So after 18 years of being indoctrinated and manipulated emotionally, it only takes one or two years for the mind to be stimulated and someone completely flipped totally on what they were raised and taught because they were not really engaged and taught and rooted and grounded at all. Now, apart from faith in Christ... Men are going to stray. There's no doubt about that. So this is not all about intellectualism. Please don't misunderstand me at all. It is the spirit. Evidence has never brought someone to faith in Christ. The intellect has never brought someone to faith in Christ. Emotions have never brought someone to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit brings men to faith in Christ. But he uses truth in doing that. And so the fact of the matter is that we are to be sober-minded, rooted and grounded, and use the means that we have that are presented, that are available, that we might engage a world that has been emotionally manipulated by the so-called church rather than having true answers provided when questions are asked. So the basis of Paul's warning to the Colossian believers was that they not allow anyone or anything to distract them from the preeminence of Christ. Again, let's look at verse 8 before we move on one more time. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Second, Paul says, beware in verse 9, lest you overlook the importance of Christ. Well, why is this even important? What's so important about the preeminence of Christ and not being distracted from him? Look at what Paul states. What, What a statement. For in him, in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What a statement. 
Nothing can transcend the person of Christ. Why would we commit ourselves to anything that distracts us from the one who is above all, before all, and preeminent and Lord? What or who can, can transcend Jesus? Nothing or no one. The preeminence of Jesus has been declared by the Father, and Paul warns the Colossian believers here to never allow anyone to deceptively persuade them to look anywhere other than Christ. For it is in Christ that the fullness of God has been manifested bodily, which is to say, in the flesh. Colossians 1, 15-18, Paul had already written, who, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In his letter to the Philippian believers, what is referred to as the Carmen Christi or the hymn to Christ, Paul expounded on the exaltation of Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul wrote, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you recall with me, I believe it's in Corinthians where Paul wrote, and he says, the head of the woman is the man, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. Here he says that God also hath highly exalted him, talking about Jesus. And so here the, it, this, this obviously causes us to ask the question, brings us to this question. Well, how is it that the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word, Logos, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, John 1, 1 and 2. So how is it that this Jesus, who's already Lord, already God, he's one with the Father, yet the third, second person of the, the Trinity, if you will, and yet you find that now it says that God has exalted him. And it says that every, the head of every woman is the man, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. How can that be? How can that order be given? Because that's speaking, obviously, as in the Carmen Christi, of the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh. He humbled himself and submitted himself under the Father as he dwelled in this flesh. That's what's being spoken of here. And so again, we see the importance of the preeminent Christ in this regard in his fleshly state. Now a glorified flesh, the Father has exalted him above all. He is Lord over all. He is before all. He's always been. He always will be. But yet now he dwells eternally with the Father in a glorified flesh, which means that we are eternally, he, he, we eternally relates to us in a glorified flesh. And we can relate to him in that respect. Not that we have a glorified flesh but we know that he walked in flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took that on himself, not without sin, that he might redeem us. And so here God has highly exalted him. He is important. And the person of Christ, the fleshly manifestation of Jesus Christ is all important. Remember, Paul writes and says there is one man and man. Christ Jesus? No, wait a minute. The man. Christ Jesus. That is important because apart 
from the flesh of Christ, him being manifested in the flesh, we would still have no means to the Father, no relationship with him whatsoever. Paul had previously stated in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell. Look, do not, do not be distracted from the preeminence of Jesus and do not be distracted from his importance. Understand who he is as scriptures declared him to be. There is nothing that is worthy of distracting us from the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ for there is no one and there is no thing that can begin to compare to him. As we saw throughout our study of, of Philippians, that Christ is superior. And in order to recognize anything else as inferior, you must first understand there is something superior to that which you hold to be superior. Then recognizing that which you may hold to be superior is really inferior to that which is superior. And that which is superior is the Lord Jesus. Everything else pales in comparison. And that's the reason, if you recall, Paul denounced his entire resume that he, was, that he thought he could present before God. Remember, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. Circumcised the eighth day. Uh, touching the to compare to me. You think you have a right to boast. He says, if anybody can boast in the flesh, it's me. Then he provides this impressive resume, then only to say, I count all things but loss for the excellency, for the superiority of Jesus Christ, that I may know him, is what Paul says. Everything else is waste. Everything else is refuse. And what he's saying is that all things that he once would have held up to God saying, Lord, here's my righteousness. He says it's all garbage compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which has now been imputed unto me. So beware. Paul says beware. He begins with that word. Beware lest you be distracted from Christ. Beware lest you overlook the importance of Christ. And then third and last, beware lest you neglect your privilege in Christ. Look at verse 10. And ye are complete in him. What did we just learn about Jesus? According to the scriptures, what we just saw, he's preeminent. But what does Paul say? That God in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Did he not say that? And now he says, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Paul's statement in this verse is one which should bring the greatest of joy in the believer's life. For it is in the preeminent Jesus that he, our heavenly father, has also made us complete or fulfilled. Paul declares in this verse that the Colossian believers have been made full in the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 3.19. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. How could you possibly be filled with the fullness of God? By knowing the love of God in Jesus Christ. Where is God's love manifested? Where is God's love demonstrated? Where is God's love received? In Christ and Christ alone. Our Heavenly Father has not only exalted Christ above all, but has also made us complete or full in His fullness. As Paul explained in his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, But of Him are ye in, of God are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God, Christ by God or of God, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Wow, listen to this list that Paul provides for us, that God has made Jesus this to us. Again, I've said to you before, we don't just receive redemption from Jesus or even just by Jesus. 
We don't just receive sanctification from God. We don't just receive righteousness of the Lord. But God the Father has made Jesus Christ his son to be wisdom to us, to be righteousness, to be sanctification, to be our redemption. Ephesians 1.3 tells us, as you are aware, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Listen to the privileges God has given us as His children because of His Son who was manifested in the flesh. How shameful, how sad, how tragic it is if we allow anything to, dist- to distract us from the preeminence of Christ and submission to His Lordship. How sad it is, how tragic it is if we allow anything to distract us from the importance, to cause us to begin to overlook the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how tragic and sad it is that men who profess Christ and many who know Christ so willingly and quickly and easily neglect the privilege that God has granted us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians? Oh, foolish Galatians, how soon you are removed from him that hath called you unto this gospel, this grace. You know what he's saying? How quickly you are removed, how soon. And what he's saying is how easily. How can it be that you are so easily distracted from the preeminence of Christ? How, how can it be you are so easily prone to overlook the importance of this Savior and His Lordship. How, how sad and how tragic it is that men are so easily and quickly neglect their privilege in Christ. You know, the reason that you can, I would venture to say to you, let, let, me just, let me just, let me stop for a moment. I did not plan to do this, but I want to ask you a question. I know all of you are going to raise your hand. You may lie, but you're still going to raise your hand nonetheless. I know you are. Okay? Remember, I can't see your hearts, but I can see your hands. I see both. <laughs> How many of you prayed this morning? I'll close my eyes, sort of. Most of us probably prayed this morning, correct? If your prayers had any significance to them at all, meaning that they were even heard by God, you don't believe that, read 1 John. If they were even heard by God, meaning that he gave ear or bent ear to them, there's only one reason that is so. Do you know why? Because, man, I've done good the last couple of days. It's happy with me, right? No. There is one reason you are heard, and that's because you are in Christ. We have access to God the Father through who? Through Christ and Christ alone. Is he not important? Sure he is. And how soon men are, how easily they are uh, prone to overlook this importance, to neglect the privilege in Christ and to be distracted from his preeminence. Verses 10 through 12, let's read them. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. I want to read these. We won't deal completely with this this morning, but I do want to read them because notice it ends in a colon. And again, a colon, it is something that joins together two independent clauses in which the second independent clause explains or emphasizes the truth of the first independent clause. 
So let's look at it again. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. It is in Christ, the head of all rulers, the head of all authorities, that we now have been given an identity. As we have been buried with him in his death, so also we are risen with him in new life through his resurrection. So here's what I say in concluding this morning. Beware, do not fail to appreciate and to demonstrate that appreciation unto God through a life submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do not fail to appreciate this great provision of our great God through His Son, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Beware. Here's the danger. The danger is that we are all prone to this. We are prone to be distracted from the preeminence and lordship of Jesus. We are prone to overlook the importance of our Savior. We are prone to neglect to live in the truth of the privileges of God as provided in Jesus Christ on our behalf. Is that not true? We are prone to this. So beware. Look to Christ who is all sufficient. He is Lord. He is preeminent. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you.